everybody. Wait, Donnie at the lake this week? Yep. Good. Good to get a break from working with all you guys all week long. He probably needs one. I wouldn't use the term work. Yeah. <laughs> Just a second. Yeah, Donnie, is that you? <clears throat> well, last week, as you know, <clears throat> we actually saw the key verse and the key chapter, uh, in my humble opinion, uh, of the book of Proverbs. And it was verse 16 where it says that she considereth a field and buyeth it, and with the work of her hands she planteth a vineyard. And it would be safe to say that this, is, this one verse here uh, is the end result, or at least it should be, of every child of God who finds the wisdom of God and, and gets the understanding of God. And the process of that, as I've given it to you many times, way back in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And uh, we know now and understand that the book of Proverbs is about a wise man and it's about a foolish man. We learned that very early on in the book of Proverbs. And, uh, you know, the, the wise man and the foolish man, doctrinally, we know that'll be the nation of Israel, which we're told in Exodus chapter 4 that in a corporate sense as a nation is God's son. We also know that historically this would be Sodom's own son, Rehoboam, who turns out to be quite the fool. And then inspirationally, <clears throat> it would be a picture of us as God's son, uh, as his uh, church, as his body. And it's obvious that some of us turn out to be quite foolish too. Now in Proverbs chapter 24, <clears throat> and I didn't give you this last week, but in Proverbs chapter 24, we find the fool. And in relationship to him and his idea of the field. Last week I showed you that every child of God, Christ died for the field, the world, Matthew chapter 13. But we are to consider a field and buy it with the same intensity. But in Matthew, uh, Proverbs chapter 24, verses 30 and 31, now you see the fool of Proverbs. And unfortunately, many of God's people who look at the field uh, and see it as it says in Proverbs chapter 24 and rejects the concept of buying a field. He says, I went by the field of the slothful and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns and nettles and covered the face thereof. And the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instruction. Now, that's the fool. And yet the Bible says that we can learn a lot by looking at people who refuse to do what God wants them to do. And uh, we can take instructions from them. Many times we're judgmental of them, and uh, that should never really be. Uh, we shouldn't we understand where people get into the problems they get into. But we should consider it well and then receive the instruction from it that you and I don't wind up in the same place. And that's that's the fool. You know, the wise man, on the other hand, will grasp the truth of God's Word. Uh, he'll allow God to use us as uh, His instrument to reach the world. And we talked about that at great length last week, and I showed you how that down through history, God has done some incredible things uh, through men who understood the concept of buying the field. The wise man will glean and gain and use all the truth that he can get to avoid the pitfalls of life. And those pitfalls in the book of Proverbs are clearly laid out by the laying out of the evil man and the strange woman. And it's laid out so clearly. 
And so we can buy a field and do all that God wanted us to do, you know, in planting a vineyard. And you remember now that the key throughout all of this that we've looked at is one, one verse in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 6. And it simply says that he hath begun a good work in you and will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. And I've, I've hinged every message in 31 on this verse because it's the truth. God saved you for a purpose. And I've said it many, many times, but I'm going to say it again. When he came down to earth, he lasted three and a half years here, almost thereabouts, before he was taken back to heaven in Acts chapter 1. And during that time, during that time, he began the work that he wants us to finish. When he goes back to heaven, the work is not finished. It continues on through him indwelling us through the Holy Spirit of God through salvation. And now you and I, buying a field, just like he bought the field, we buy a field and then commit our life to that and finish the work that God has for us. And I told you last week, my field was Kansas City. Your field is Kansas City, unless God takes you someplace else. And I also showed you how that God establishes this through families. Families who bring their children up to work in a ministry team, like so many of you have done or are doing, and then be used to God to finish that work. And of course, we we do it one field at a time. We started here a number of years ago, and now we're literally around the world with people from almost in every country that or or getting what we're doing, and and I get calls every week uh, from people who are gleaning everything that they can. So, you know, it's a thing where you have you have with me have we planted a vineyard, and you pow now are that. And remember, I told you, uh, I also showed you that you know it, it talks about a vineyard, and the vineyard uh, is likened to fruit-bearing trees back in Genesis chapter one, verse one and two, where the trees that were in the garden. Uh, had seed-bearing seeds within themselves that you had one apple tree and 20 years later you have 20 apple trees because the apples fall to the ground, they got seeds in it, and that's how the trees grow. And you know, in the Bible, one time in Mark chapter 8, verse 44, uh, Jesus dealt with a blind man and he touched his eyes the first time and he asked him what he saw and he, tremendous statement, he says, I see men walking around as trees. And from that point on and through other places in the Bible, men are likened to trees. Men have limbs. The trees have limbs. So do you. Uh, we talk about our family tree. It has branches going back in our ancestry. So do we. And, uh, you know, men are like trees. And with Christ as the center, of, as the tree of life, he's also called the olive tree in, in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11. In John chapter 15, verse 1, he's called the true vine. And, uh, you know, it's us laboring together to build a fruitful vineyard that will simply bear fruit unto the Lord. That's all this church is all about. It's about people coming in, and we started years ago. We started with 12 or so, and it, it's here it is today. And it's the thing where it's nothing more than you as a Christian getting the Holy Spirit of God in your life, getting, getting what you need to get, and then realizing what your field is. And then you bring somebody to church. You bring somebody here and the field gets expanded, the vineyard gets expanded. You know, I showed you the five points that you have to, you have to accomplish whenever you decide to build a field, in, in my personal experience about building a church. And I told you the first thing you have to do is clear it. 
clear the field. The second thing you have to do is plow the field, and we put all of these in a Bible context last week. Then the third thing is to sow the field. We talked about protecting the field, and then talked about cultivating the field, knowing when the fruit is ripe to be ready to go. You know, a church is a lot like God's Garden of Eden back in the uh, book of Genesis. And uh, we uh, are like that. In fact, Psalms chapter 1, verse 1 and 3 follows the same line. It says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law doth he meditate day and night. And then it goes on to say that he shall be like a tree, planted by the river waters that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. That is the end result of a man or a woman, a family, a mom and dad, who simply uh, understand the great principles. And you delight yourself in the Word of God. And the Bible says that we are like in that tree planted by the river of water. There's only one tree in the Bible that's planted by the river of waters, and that's in Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48, when the water in the millennial reign of Christ comes out of the holy oblation and comes down and the trees are on both sides. That's what we should be. The Holy Spirit of God should flow right down the middle of this church. On each side of that river are the trees, you, who are like the trees of life. And this garden of God, this vineyard, continues to bear fruit, not because you and I are such great people, but because we're saved people that God transformed us and brought us into the kingdom of his dear son and now the holy spirit of god illuminates the people around us your life makes a difference people see it you'll bring people in people will come they'll get they'll see they'll want the bible they're looking for the bible they find it and it's all because this field keeps growing and it says that he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in the season second thing i want to tell you is there is a season to our fruit bearing Apple trees don't bear apples in January. And right now in your life and my life, most of you, uh, all of you really, are in the prime place of your life to really bear fruit in your season. It also says your leaf shall not wither. That's your family. And it says, well, what you shall ever do shall prosper. You know, there's a story back in that we tell our children about King Midas. And King Midas loved gold so much that everything he wanted, he asked that, that everything he touched would turn to gold because he just wanted gold. And when he got that, you know, from the good fairy, uh, when he got that, uh, good fairy back then is a little different than a good fairy today. But anyway, when he got that, uh, you know, that's, but this is fag day, so amen. <laughs> so it was a thing where when he got that, he, he could touch everything, and he'd go through everything and touching, and everything turned to gold. And he was ecstatic. His little kids ran in, and they grabbed him, and guess what happened? They turn to gold. And the story of the, of the worldly version of that is the fact what a terrible thing that was that he wanted gold so much that he turned his children into gold. Let me put that in a spiritual concept for you. The greatest thing you could ever do is have the power in your life to turn your kids into gold for Jesus Christ. Because at the judgment seat of Christ, the first thing laid on that foundation is gold, silver, precious stones. And that's what he's saying here. Oh, it's an incredible concept. Now, in the Bible, you have the concept of a husbandman. And a husbandman is a man whose occupation as a husbandman is to keep the garden or a vineyard. 
And really, I don't know if you even know this or not, it's the first occupation found in the Bible in Genesis chapter 9 with Noah. And then you find at other places, uh, um, Isaac uh, is associated with it, Joseph is associated with it in his dream. But Noah is the first one that we are told that he is a bona fide husbandman. And you know, in the Old Testament in the book of Joel, this concept is developed with Israel now who is in deep apostasy, who Israel was to be in the Old Testament, the husbandman of the vineyard of the nation of Israel. You find this all through the Bible. And in Joel chapter 1, verses 10, 11, or really 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, you find Israel's condition now as the nation of God, the husbandman of God's vineyard. And what has happened? It says in verse 8, Lament like a virgin girdled in sackcloth for a husband of her youth. That's Israel to God. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, uh, the Lord's ministers mourn. The field is wasted. The land mourneth for the corn is wasted. The new wine is dried up. The oil languisheth. Be ye ashamed, O ye husbandmen, how, O ye vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because of the harvest of the field, is perished. The vine is dried up, the fig tree languished, the pomegranate tree, the palm trees also, and the apple tree, even all the trees of the field are withered. Why are they withered? Because joy is withered away from the sons of men. Hey, let me tell you something. You and I, I'll make a spiritual application to it. That's Israel doctrinally. You and I are just like that. We are God's vineyard. And I want you to know the reason why the vineyard withered is because joy withered away from the sons of men. And that joy in 1 John chapter 1 is our fellowship with Him. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. These things write I unto you, that's your what? Joy may be full. You know what's wrong with Christianity today? You know why churches aren't winning people to Christ? You know why there's no depth in them? You know why everybody's just kind of playing at church? I'll tell you why. Because the joy is withered away. And that was Israel, and that's the church today. And that's, that's where we're at. Now, today, uh, we want to look at, again, a couple of more verses and add uh, to last week and, and uh, all that we've seen in chapter 31 and literally all that we've seen uh, through the book of Proverbs. And I want to read for you today Proverbs chapter 31, verses 17 uh, and 18. And it says, She girdeth her loins with strength and strengthened her arms. She perceiveth that her merchandise is good. Her candle goeth out, out by night. Kevin, would you stand up and ask me? Kevin just called me this week, and they were waiting to fulfill some obligations in the church they were, and they left, and now they're here this week for good, and we're glad to have you. We love you and your family, and you're just great people. And uh, if you didn't, wouldn't have had a Jeep, we wouldn't have let you stay. I want you to know that. But you're the Jeep girl. Kevin asked God's blessing on the preaching this morning.
get to know that family. They are a precious family, and they love the book, and they got a good family that loves the Lord, and uh, they're, they're good people. Okay, verse 17, first off, <clears throat> she girdeth her loins with strength. Now, I want to show you something here. And this is the key concept because the strength of any man, woman too, will be within the loins or the legs. You'll see it in football when a running back is, <clears throat> is uh, uh, running down the field and he's there at the, getting close to the goal line and three tacklers will hold on to him, but he pumps his legs and he gets inside the goal line. That's where his strength is. You'll find it in baseball. You know, you find it, uh, you know, you don't hit with your arms. You hit from the strength of your loins. You find it in soccer. And uh, it's a thing where, <clears throat> you know, it's in every aspect of sport. The strength is in a man's loins or in his legs. And you remember, in the Bible, <clears throat> our legs represent and our feet represent where we go for God and our arms and our hands, what we do for God. You want to remember that. You know, our loins will be the center point or the center mass for all of that strength. Again, weightlifters. Uh, you know, they'll lift with their legs. They'll, they won't lift with their back. They, they, that's why you always see them, that they have tiny waist, but their legs look like telephone booths. I mean, they're huge. Because they, you know, and that's what they do. And uh, I, I go to the gym up there, and they've got bodybuilders. And, you know, some of the women bodybuilders, I mean, I mean their legs are, look like Volkswagens. I mean, they're incredible. You know, because they, and they're always lifting with their legs. And, you know, and, it's, and they think it looks good. You know? <laughs> Let me tell you something, guys. Never date a gal that can kick the crap out of you and begin to push comes to shove. You just don't want to do that. So anyway, it's a thing where, you know, it, 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 but I want to show you something here. I want to show you how that when you study something like this in the Bible, now where are you going? I'm just getting to the good part. <laughs> Got her, didn't I, huh? <laughs> <laughs> She'll be a Methodist by next week, I promise you. <laughs> Not that girl. Anyway, I want to show you something here. This is, this, is, this is when you get in your Bible and you start studying your Bible, the Bible will go through stages of showing you something. And you, in most cases, you don't want to just stop at one place because you want to get that trail of where it's going. And this is a great example of this. And, uh, you know, and it, 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 it shows us that when you study something like this, you always get, let the Bible define it for you. Don't just stop where you're at and say, this is what it means. Follow it through and see where it goes. And that's incredible. Now, turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. And here again, you know, we know that this is the great chapter on the whole armor of God and uh, seven pieces of armor there that every Christian should be equipped with. And Paul uses, as I told you a couple of weeks ago, the example of a first century Roman soldier. So he's laying it all out. And, uh, you know, we, we, we want to we see this. Now look at Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 10 through 14, and I want you to see how it says one thing back in Proverbs, but then it defines what that strength is. Now watch. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. <clears throat> Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. 
Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Now watch this. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Now there it is, verse 14. You know what he did? He just defined back in Proverbs when it says the strength of our loins. Now he just told us what that strength is in. It's in the Word of God, truth. So it's, that, that's what you do. You, you start back here, and then you say, now I'm going to see where this goes, because strength, is a, strength is, a, you know, is a broad thing. So let's see if we can narrow it down. And so what do you do? Well, you, you just work through the Bible. This is where you can use a concordance if you want, and you look up the words loins or whatever and see where it goes. would be a great way to do that. And what you have here is now he's defined for us that the strength of the Lord of our loins is the truth. Loins girt about with truth. And as you know, the loins, the center of gravity, mass, the point of our strength. Now, you see here that that strength in the Word of God is given. He says four times in what I just read you, he tells us for us to stand. He says, be able to stand. He says, be able to withstand. He says, done all to stand. And then he says, stand therefore. Now, this is what you have to do if you're going to buy the field. You have to take a stand at some point in your life on some things. You know, and when our loins are fixed in the foundation of God's truth, then we are steadfast. We're unmovable. We're anchored to God's truth. And when we consider a field and then we buy it like last week, that's where you take your stand. We, we talked about it Thursday night when Tony asked a question about suffering. And I, I told you, the suffering isn't, you know, giving up anything, though many people think that it is. The real suffering for Jesus Christ is when you take your stand, and you're going to pay a price for that. And I told you then, God's people today will either take a stand for the wrong things, <laughs> or they'll take no stand at all. And when you do that, in either case, then you fall for everything. Now, now let me show you something else. We're not done yet. Now, I got that, and I went from strength. Now, I went to Lawrence Gert about with truth. Now, I'm going to continue my study. I'm going to narrow it down even more than that. And let me show you something else. The Bible defines strength as truth of the Word of God. Now, we will define loins uh, in a little deeper thing. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. This is how you use the Bible to let the Bible interpret itself to get not only the answer of what you're looking for and get into a deeper study, but my, 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 how it just all comes back in everything that we need in our lives. Now, we've seen loins of strength and then loins that good about with truth. Now, watch this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So now we see that this strength of your loins is really in your mind. And we see that that's the mind of God that we've been talking about. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2, 5. We have the mind of, uh, mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. This is Isaiah 55, 8, 9, when it says, God's thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways are not my ways. And we need to bring every thought into captivity of the obedience of Jesus Christ. And this is 
1 John 1, 7 again. Walking in the light as he is in the light, having fellowship one with another. There'll be no fellowship with God outside walking in the light, and that light will be your strength. That light will be God's truth, and God's truth and God's light in your life will only become part of you when it makes it into your mind. I, I told you last week the battleground that exists for, for our families, the families in this church, the families across the world, and the families across this country. You can see it in every aspect of society. Families have lost their kids. They've lost their children. And it's a situation where that should never be when it comes to God's people. It should never certainly be in this church. And I know that some of you came in later in life as your kids were already struggling. I get that. I'm talking about you young couples right now. And that battle in the beginning will never be a battle of flesh and blood. It'll be a spiritual battle. But in time, later on, when they hit 16, 17, 18, then the blood will start to flow. Then you get into the flesh and blood battles. Then you get into the knockdown dragouts. But it all goes back to where it started. You have got to see the importance of those early years going through those five stages that I've given you so many times that you in that early aspect of your life can structure their minds against all that's coming their way. You can strengthen their minds with the Word of God, and by doing that, you shape their will of where they're going in life. You know, by the time they get five, six, and seven, I know they're still young yet, and I know you still have a tremendous <clears throat> advantage in them if you've done up to that point what you should be doing, but I want to tell you the real battle begins when they go off to school. The real battle goes in when you lose 100% control over what they see and what they hear, and now you hope they get a good teacher. They hope you hope they get good friends. Now where you're going to, they're going to be put in a mix with people, kids who are their age that don't have any parents who do anything for them. Now you're going to run the risk of getting of a teacher who doesn't care about anything except the worldly progressive mindset of a liberal. This is where the battle has to be. This is where it's going to begin. And you have to be already firmly entrenched in their mind. You know, my war was the war of Vietnam. It was not a popular war. And uh, it was unlike any war that America uh, ever faced. And I, and I don't know if you know it or not, but uh, uh, America had a great victory in World War II. We defeated the Nazis in Germany and the Japanese in Japan. Uh, it was a great victory. The next war came along was Korea. And it really came along too soon after the big one. And nobody really cared about that. We didn't win that one. We just drew a line in the 38th parallel over there in, between North and South Korea and called a ceasefire. We're technically still at war with North Korea. We have just, you know, but we didn't win it. That one was a draw. Then the next one that came along was Vietnam. And we lost miserably in Vietnam. We were fighting in Vietnam to stop communism. When we pulled out, if you would go to Vietnam today, South Vietnam, Saigon, and all those places, all communism. We lost our shirt in Vietnam. We had over 25,000 boys die uh, to, um, to turn it over to the communists at the end, and we cut and run. Now, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not against the war in Vietnam, 
But what I am against is getting any war when you don't win it. America could have won Vietnam in six months or maybe a year. But we got politics involved. And you know, every time politics get involved, you're going to lose. You know, in your life, when politics get involved, you're going to lose. Yeah, it's just that simple. You can't fight a war with politics. There were guys over there, we, situations over there where you got fired on and you had to call for permission before you could fire back. There was a situations where, you know, you couldn't bomb Hanoi. They stocked every weapon that they had in, in Hanoi. I mean, they, it went up like a 4th of July. But because of politics, we couldn't cross that line to bomb the enemy city. But they were free and footsie loot to bomb us to everywhere they wanted to. They called one time and the guy says, oh, we're going to blow up this bridge because they're crossing over in mass. And he says, well, you know, the order came back. You can't, you can't blow up that bridge. Now... Maybe you can just blow up the one end of the bridge. And the commander said, in all my 40 years in the military, I've never learned how to blow up just one end of a bridge. But that's what we were up against. And they came up with a failed strategy. It's really a Bible strategy, but it didn't work for Vietnam. They decided not to beat the Viet Cong on their own turf. They decided not to... Uh, to just destroy everything and, and bomb everything. And there were places when they, they wouldn't even bomb them. And they, you could see at night the, the lights and tortures of them coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail and just hundreds of them reinforcing. Couldn't touch them. Couldn't touch them. Because they adopted a failed policy. Instead of wiping them out and, and defeating them that way, they thought that they could win the hearts and minds. And that became the slogan during Vietnam the winning of hearts and minds. If we, you know what their philosophy was? That in every Vietnamese, there's an American trying to get out. So if we win their hearts and their minds, they're all going to come over and see the light, so to speak, and want to be Americans. And that wasn't, that, nothing could be farther from the truth. We lost the Vietnam War on that mindset right there because the winning of hearts and minds was not what they were interested in. But you see, the war in Vietnam was not like World War II. It wasn't even like Korea. It was a war of ideology. It was a war of thinking. And instead of going to battle and winning, we decided to go a philosophical route and try to win their hearts and minds. And when you've got a guy who gets up every morning and he's raised from the time that he's four years old, and by the time he's five, he can strip an AK-47 down and put it back together blindfolded, and he goes to military school when he's nine, and he learns all of his life how to sneak in and kill you and cut your throat while you're sleeping and smoking dope on, on, on patrol. Let me tell you something. You're not going to win his hearts and mind. There's only one thing you can do. Kill him. In Jesus' name, but you kill him. You kill him. I'm just telling you. That's, you want a war? Okay, I, I don't like war. But if you're going to have one, win it. It ain't this idea, you know, in case it rains today, the war will be held in the auditorium. That ain't going to work. You got to go get them. And the battle today, as I've said, is for your family. Now, here's where it will work. Because you'll win the battle for your family if you as parents will go after their hearts and minds. It wouldn't work in Vietnam, but it will work because that is a biblical principle. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, by the transforming, uh, you know, of your mind. You transform those kids' minds. You win their hearts and their minds, and then in time you turn their heart and their minds into God, where God is. 
And uh, it, it, this war with your family will be won by you developing in your children, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, a sound mind. And when you get their mind, you'll get their attitude of heart. They're at that early age that, will, uh, that you can gird the, the, their minds in the strength of, of the Word of God. The winning of hearts and minds. I've, I don't, can't even tell you how many times we've been marked as, we talked about this Thursday night, our church, any church who believes the Bible today is outcast with all the other churches. And we get labeled as a cult. And, uh, you know, and it's a thing where I, I don't know how many times uh, you know, we, I, I heard somebody say, well, I don't know if I want my kid to go to that church, or I don't know if I want to go to that church. I don't want them being brainwashed. And, you know, and, and brainwashing has such a, such a negative thing because of, of all the other, of all cults and everything that's out there. But I want to tell you something else. I'm going to tell you something. Brainwashing originally is a biblical process. He says, by washing of regeneration... You know the first thing you need when you get saved? You need your brain washed. Now, your mother went halfway when she used to say in the old days when you used to cuss, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. But that never really worked. In my case, I developed a taste for it after a while. <laughs> the bottom line is, it wasn't your mouth that needed to be washed out. It was your brain. You needed to be brainwashed. And, you know, by washing of regeneration. One time, years and years ago, this lady came in, and she had a boy that was, you know, teenage boy, 17 or 18. And she says, I really need some help with my child, my kid. And I said, okay, what, what's going on? And she, you know, he's just a normal kid. He was hanging out with the wrong crowd, getting in trouble with school and all those things. And I said, well, I'd be glad to help you. So this kid came in. I worked with him. Nice kid. Helped him. Got into the Bible just like that. He was an easy, he was an easy mark. He really, really wanted to do what's right. He just wanted somebody to help him. He got into the Bible, loved the Bible, started coming to church every time we had something. Was really a good kid. And then his mom calls me up again. Now she's complaining because I brainwashed her son. She says all he wants to do is stay home and study the Bible. Like, God forbid... She says, you know what? He's not a normal kid anymore. Well, just what? Eight months ago, you were here complaining because he was a normal kid. Now we've made him a model kid, and now you don't like that. And she said, you brainwashed my son. And I said, absolutely. <laughs> and if I were you, I wouldn't go to sleep at night because when a clock strikes 12, he knows there's something that needs to be done. I said, absolutely I did. I said, I took the Bible, and the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, that it, you, you change somebody's mind by the washing of regeneration. And we took the Word of God as likened to water, and we, 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 we washed out everything that was bad and replaced it with all of the things that are good. And I don't understand why you have a problem with that. You come here, I guarantee you, get it on tape so you can go out and just cut the episode out. You're going to get brainwashed if you stick around here very long, but praise the Lord. Amen. This church is like a gigantic washing machine. And every Sunday you get thrown into it like dirty laundry. And you know, you know you come in here on Sunday morning, you're not all as clean as you should be. Amen. You know that. I mean, you should be, some of you are, but most of us aren't. We come in here with some dirty laundry, don't we? So here you are. I'm the Maytag man. 
you come in, and, you know, we, you put in there, and, but you know when you wash your clothes, ladies, you know it's the same thing. You f- put your clothes in, you fill up the washer, you put the soap in. But you know that doesn't get your clothes clean. Your clothes doesn't get clean till you turn the agitator on. And you can watch right in your washing machine. And boom, 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 boom. It's beating them clothes back and forth. That's what gets the dirt out. And you know what? Yeah, the Bible's great. Praise the Lord. It's the water of the Word of God. And that church is like a washing machine. But you'll never get clean till you get the agitator in your world. And you know when you get a tough stain that just won't come out? You got to go to the cupboard and get that bottle of it. Shout it out! You know what's wrong with everyone or most of you this morning? You're brainwashed. You're brainwashed. I mean, it's just that simple. And then it says that when you have your loins girt about with strength, truth, the loins of your mind, that it will strengthen your arms. Arms is what you do God's work with. You know, arms will be strength of your, of your hands. You know, it's a lot like the thing you all see, you know, with a big buffed out guy's walking in the house and when he comes in and he takes off his chest and he's got a little skinny chest, he rips off his arms, he's got a little, you see that one? That's most of God's people. All the strength that they got on is fake. Or better yet, you're like the two moving guys that are moving those things, you know, and they got them on the truck like this and the lady says, we should have had those guys. And he says, we are those guys, you know. Uh, the picture on the truck adds 50 pounds to her, her arms, you know. It's fake! You walk around church, you know, puffed up, buffed up, big arms and all that stuff, but when you get home, you know, it's take the chest off and you've got the skinniest little goofy chest the world has ever seen. You take your arms off, peel them off, you know, you've got the tattoos on the big arms and you take them off. You've got little matchsticks arms. I, I used to watch people arm wrestle. You know, they have regular contests where they do that. And they'll get on there and they'll lock hands like that. And you know what? It isn't the hands that win. It's what you've got in your arms. I love Joe Christensen. You know, he's, a, he's an independent police officer. I always kid him because, you know, he never, he never wears, I shouldn't say this because he'll probably, but he never wears his gun to church. You know, he never wears his guns anywhere. He's tired of wearing it all day long. And I, I love him because, I, and he's kind of a martial arts guy. I mean, you don't want to mess with Joe. Joe puts you down and, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, he won't put his knee on your neck, but he'll put you down, I promise you. <laughs> I'm going to clarify that. But I told Joe one time, I, 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 but every time I hug him, I always reach around and feel if he's got his gun on, you know. And I said, you don't have your gun, do you? And he says, and I love Joe. He says, I don't need it. I got these guns. And I like that. <laughs> it's in his arms, in his strength. And he will put you down. And it's one of those things where it's, you know, it's the, it's the great concept in the Bible of attitude versus action. The mind is your attitude, and when you get the strength of that mind in the Word of God, and your mind becomes the strength of the Word of God, and that's your loins girt about with truth, then your arms will be the action. And when your attitude is where it needs to be, girded in truth, then your action will be exactly where God's work wants them to be. And the strength will be in your arms all the way down to your hands based on the attitudes you have 
of, of the perception that you have of things and understand what's going on. Letting the Word of God give you the right attitude and then us doing the right work. And, and, and you know, I, I like to study people. I'm a guy who go, when, when they used to go to Disney World, I never wrote anything. I didn't care about that. I, you know, we, go to, we used to go to Worlds of Fun. I, I never wrote anything. I mean, some of you guys were upside down half your day in those rides. I just, I just like to sit and watch people. I go to the airport, I like to watch people. You know, people are a great study. And I've always liked, on a closer level, I've always liked looking how people deal with situations that come into their world. And it actually, attitude and action will define who we are very quickly. And I tell people all the time, you know, whatever your action is will be based on what your attitude is. And when you get the wrong attitude because you got the wrong information, then your action's going to be wrong. And it's just that simple. And then verse 18 says, She perceiveth that her merchandise is good. Her candle goeth not out by night. Now this, this goes without saying that your merchandise here will be the Word of God. We saw it back in Proverbs 31, 14. She brought her food from afar, you know, give her household and her maiden. So we know what that is. Ah, the key word here is she perceiveth. To have perception when it comes to God is to understand, have your mind, loins, strength, truth in the Word of God, and then you understand exactly what you have when you have your Bible. And it says that she perceiveth that her merchandise is good. She knows what she has in the Word of God. She perceives that it is the truth of God from afar, and she knows what she has, and she knows that it's good. She knows that the book that she has is her absolute final authority in everything in life. You know, people think the Bible is a religious book. Bible is not a religious book. The Bible is a history book. But it's not a history book about what man is doing, and a lot of people think that. The Bible is a history book about what God is doing, why he's doing it, when he's doing it, where he's doing it, and what the end result is going to be. And when you have that, you have perception. You don't look at your life in just little tunnel vision anymore. You see it now through the scope of what God is doing. And then it says, her candlestick goeth not out by night. Now, I, I think that this is probably one of the premier studies uh, anywhere uh, in, in the Word of God. And uh, now, uh, you know, each of us, when you come through the New Testament in the book of Matthew, each of us is likened to a candle. And we're a candle that is a light that shines in the dark world. And uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 16 says that we are the lesser light that lighteth up the night. Now the light of your candle will be the Holy Spirit of God in you, the virtue that you have that others see. And he says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? Uh, it is there, uh, uh, thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Then he says, Ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, 
and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, there's a number of things here. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where, first of all, he says that God's people are the light of this world. We'll talk about the salt here in just a little bit. He says God's people are the light of this world. We're like a candle. You take a church of 300 people, with everybody's candle being lit, people are going to see that. And the idea is you get God's people, each one a candle, and it's lit, and you got 1,000 of them or 500 of them uh, in a dark world, that's going to, people are going to be drawn to that. I, I, I want to tell you right now, I know we're in the apostasy, I know we're in the Laodicean church age, we'll get into that here a little bit. I'll tell you, but I'm telling you right now, I believe there's still people out there who want the truth. And I believe there's still people out there that are looking for the truth. I get calls from them all week long. I get emails from them all week long, all over the world, all over the country, who are on the website. I mean, they're buying books, they're buying tapes, they're getting this, they're getting that, they're going through studies. There are people out there who want the truth. But the only way they ever found the truth was because this church, where the majority of the people had their candles lit and they saw the light. You know, in wartime, during the World War II, and any wartime really, in the Navy, when you were on a ship, at nighttime they had a blackout. They had the windows all shaded out and because they wanted to stay in darkness. And it was absolutely forbidden to smoke a cigarette on deck because it was assumed and said, I don't know if it's true or not, but I would see that it is, it was, it was said that you could see a lit cigarette on the deck of a ship 10 miles away. And that may be hard to believe unless you've ever been on the ocean at night and it's so pitch black. I mean, you can't see the hand in front of your face. And what happens is the darkness will illuminate that little light because it's so dark. And there'll never be a time in the history of the world where the world is in more darkness than it is right now. And just one little candle if you allow God for you to be that candle, God will take your little candle and through the massive darknesses, let that darkness illuminate your light and people will see it. I remember one time years ago, and you know me, I'm not into this kind of stuff, but I thought it was pretty impressive. I was, I was with a church and I was a nobody back then and I'm just a somebody nobody now. But anyway, they had a candlelight service at, 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 uh, at um, New Year's. And there must have been 3,000 people at the church service. And as you came in, everybody got a candle. And the guy that spoke preached on, let your light shine. And it was, it was kind of impressive. I, it, it really was. I mean, I'm not going to do it, but uh, you know, we'd burn the place down. But it was pretty impressive. So what they did is they went through the crowd. And like, if there was 2,000 people there, every, every 100 person, got their candle lit. Then they turned out all the lights. And all you could see was just a candle here, candle here, candle here, candle here, total darkness. Then at the command, the person sitting next to that person lit their candle and they lit their candle and within 30 seconds, the whole place lighted up with 2,000 candles. And the illustration was that a church needs to get just one or two people on fire and that being on fire lights your candle will infect other people. And pretty soon, the whole church got their candles lit. 
That's what it takes to reach the world. It, it takes one person caring enough to have a candle that's not going to go out, lighting other people's candles, and then other people lighting other Exactly what you do here. Exactly what you do here. Everybody, almost without exception, that gets saved in this church gets saved because somebody else worked them, brought them, plowed the field, got them here, and then used their candle to light their candle. And that's the way it's supposed to be. I wouldn't have it any other way. It's just that simple. And uh, it's one of those things where, and I get guys ask me all the time, well, how come you don't give an invitation? The Baptist church I went to went to the give a table every week. Well, I'll just be honest with you. I am so sick and tired of giving an invitation, people coming down and claiming to get saved and then never seeing them again. I'm just telling you. We get more, we, I, and I'm not against giving invitations. I'll give one every once in a while. I gave one here a couple of while, weeks back. You know, God tells you to do it, you do it. But this idea of just giving one because Baptists are supposed to give one, and then, you know, I've, I've, seen, them, I, I've seen them, you know, sing, you know, 10 stanzas just as I am. Nobody's coming forward. And, uh, you know, and then the pastor, he, 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 he wants people to get saved, which I, I get. But you know what? You never want to force people to get saved. You never want to manipulate people to get saved. You know what? When we give an invitation here, I don't have anybody sing a song. I don't want the song to motivate you to get saved. You know why? Because if my preaching didn't do it and the Holy Spirit of God using my preaching didn't do it, then you don't need to get saved. So I'll just say every head bowed, every eye closed. You want to get saved right now, stand up. Boom, 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 boom. They pop up over the place like mushrooms in springtime. And it's a thing where, you know, you just get your bucket and go pick them. And, it's a, and, I, and, I, and I, I just, you know, he'll get up there and he'll say, I've watched this. He'll sing 10 stanzas just as, just as I am. And the pastor, you know, he says, okay, we're going to change songs now to give you one more chance. Let's sing Almost Persuaded. Almost. <laughs> because you're supposed to think now you haven't come forward yet. You're almost persuaded. Okay? I mean, I'll tell you. I mean, that's just stupid. You know, okay, third song. She'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. I, I, come on. It's just ridiculous stuff. And I'm not going to beg you to get saved. I'm not going to manipulate you to get saved. You know what I want? I want you to light your candle, keep your candle lit that all men can see it. Don't hide it under a bushel basket. And I want you to let, light somebody else's candle by letting God's Holy Spirit use you in their life. We get more people saved that way than we do just singing a thousand stanza. And it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's just where it's at. And it says that her candlestick goeth not out by night. You know, and, and we are, but I want you to notice here that it says in verse 16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works. The light of your candle will be in your good works that you do. Finishing that work that Christ had for you. Now, here's the problem with Christianity today, and, and just basically three things. No book, no truth, and no light. And that's where they're at. You know, I've given you many times, we've talked about it on Thursday Night Bible Study, the great example in 1 Samuel chapter 3 with young Samuel back there, where he's called into the ministry. And I've told you how that that is one of the most incredible, rarest places in the Bible where God just kind of lifts that whole story out of the Old Testament and seemingly puts it into a New Testament context, even though it's still in the Old Testament. I mean, when you go back there, uh, you know, you have a picture of the Laodicean church. It's the only place in the Bible, in the Old Testament anyhow, where during uh, 
Samuel's time with Eli as the priest, that candlestick goes out. And Leviticus chapter 24, verse 2, and Exodus 25, 31, tells us clearly that candle was never to go out. That candle was to burn forever because it's a picture of the Holy Spirit of God's light within the tabernacle of the nation of Israel. And yet here's a place where the light goes out. Ere the, the lamp of God went out in the temple where the ark of God was and Samuel was laid down to sleep. It's a perfect, perfect picture of the church period that we're living in right now. You realize that when I, I, when I was looking at this a while back, it kind of jumped out at me. I, I thought to myself, you know what? In verse 1, it says that there was no open vision when this story starts. Now, that's not true of the Old Testament per se because visions were all through the Old Testament. But here's a period of time where God shows to be no open vision. And then at the, in verse 21, the last verse, he says, when the Lord finally did appear to Samuel, he appeared to him through the Word of God. Samuel didn't have the Word of God. He might have had Moses' books, but he didn't have the Bible as we do. And in the Old Testament, God spoke to them through prophets, through dreams, through visions. But here's a place where all that's gone. And he says, now there's no open vision. And God appeared to him through the word of God. You know what? We live in a day and age called the church age where there is no open vision. All God's going to use is a more sure word of prophecy. And I'm going to tell you right now, when God speaks to you, when he calls you like he did Samuel, he's going to do it through the book you're holding in your hand. Then, then it said in verse 3, ere the lamp of God went out. It wasn't a lamp. Well, if you go back to Exodus, it was a seven-pronged candlestick. But here he doesn't call it that. He calls it a single lamp because in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 11, God operated through the seven spirits. That's why he had seven-pronged candlestick back in the Old Testament. But he didn't say that here because this is a picture of something different. Now it's a single lamp. That would be the New Testament when the Holy Spirit of God is now in one body after the resurrection of Christ and he's in you. And you are the lamp of God. That word is a lamp under my feet and a light under my path. This is the only time that you find it where the lamp doesn't, it, it goes out. And all of these things, it's a picture of our candle not going out during the church age. And all this is a picture of where we are at today in this Laodicean church period. Because Revelation chapter 1, verses 20, when he starts to talk about the seven churches, he tells us very clearly that you have seven angels that are connected with seven stars, that are connected with seven candlesticks that represent the seven periods of church history from 60 A.D. to 2000, Revelation 1, 2, and 3. Each church period, from what he says there, seems to have an angel that is connected with a candlestick, the Holy Spirit of God, that is the light of that church through the Word of God for men to do the work of God. And in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, we are told that in just like in 1 Samuel 3, God will take the angel and remove the candlestick out of any church that loses its first love, which is the Word of God. And when you get to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, you'll find the Laodicean church, the church of the closed door, verse 20, and you're told very clearly that that church has lost its candlestick a church that thinks that it has it all, a church that, as we see in Revelation 3, verse 17, has need of nothing except more money. 
They think they're rich, but they have no true riches, Luke chapter 16, verse 11. They're increased with goods, but it's all the wrong merchandise, Proverbs chapter 31, verse 17 and 18. They have gymnasiums. They have restaurants. They have basketball courts. They have walking tracks. Uh, they have a $200,000 sound system. They have, uh, they have rock bands. They have break dancing for Jesus on the stage. They have light shows. Smoke comes up when you start the service and everybody gets lost in the fog. They are okay with social drinking. They have all the elements. They have everything, everything that Saturday Night Live has. Well, shoot. You can go to church now and say, wow, what service do I want to go to? Do I want to go to the traditional or do I want to go to a contemporary or do I want to go to a progressive service? You get to choose. You go to one, it's like it used to be a long time ago, still no preaching. You go to the second one, it's worldly, and you go to the third one, it's moving right along with all the world. And the Bible says, and knowest not, verse 17, that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You know what the problem is? No candlestick, no light. And churches without lights are run by pastors with no light who, fill, who are filled with God's people with no light. They've lost the book. They've lost God's mind, the Word of God, and they're now unstable in their own, and they've lost their minds. They need to get brainwashed, and they'll never buy any field. And he says about this church in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, I know thy works. That thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou were cold or hot. So because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. There goes the angel. There goes the candlestick. There goes the church. Exactly what we have today. Lukewarm churches. No doctrine. No preaching. Run by lukewarm pastors. No preaching of the truth. Filled with lukewarm Christians who, who, who wouldn't walk across the street to buy a field for the Lord Jesus Christ. And today in Christianity, it's told in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, church of the closed door. That is a great contrast if you go to the church before it, the church of the open door and see the difference between the two. Mega churches and small churches with no light, no word, and Jesus on the outside knocking, trying to get back in. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, that's the word of God, and open the door, I will come into him and he will sup with me. And, 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 he, and me with him. What a powerful chapter, chapter 31 is. Not only does it show us what we should be, but it shows us the, the real issue of what our Christianity is today. No light. Our candle's gone out, just like in 1 Samuel chapter 3. We've dumped the book, we've dumped everything, and we've got a form of godliness, but there's no power in preaching. There's nothing that, it, we're lukewarm. People still get saved, but there's no power. There's no purpose. There's no perception. You know, the book of Colossians in the New Testament is one of the best examples of this. You know, in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, we are told that John writes to seven churches. In the New Testament, we know that Paul writes to seven churches. What most people don't know or never figure out, and believe it or not, and a great study that it is to see how that the seven churches that Paul writes to and the seven churches that John writes, John writes to, they match up. And if you want to match each one of those up, it's an incredible study on its own. But we don't have time to do that today. But the book of Colossians will match up with the church of Laodicea. 
the one we're in right now, the one with no light. The book of Colossians has four chapters in it, and it deals with the apostasy of where we're at right now. In chapter 1, it goes through this incredible refocusing on who Christ is because the church today has lost who He is. Then in chapter 2, he talks about the issues that we have to face in Christianity that have destroyed us, and that's found in chapter 2, verse 8. It shows us that the church today is built on four things, philosophy, vain deceit, traditions of men, and the rudiments of the world, and then clearly says, and not after Christ. And in chapter 3 and 4, once he lays out those two things, then he shows us in chapter 3 and 4 what I'm supposed to do and carry out my ministry in that time frame. Now, in the book of Colossians, you'll find toward the end that the city of Laodicea is mentioned five times. Hence, this book lines up to Laodicea church period. And here's the key, the warning for all of us that Christianity has failed uh, to heed today. You see, Colossia was a major city. It was a trade route. I told you that last week, I think it was. But just 11 miles south of Colossia was the city of Laodicea. It's like Kansas City. We're in Independence right now. But if you just drive a half a mile down to the quick trip, you're in Kansas City. If you just drive a little farther east, you're in Blue Springs. If you drive, you know, uh, this way, you'll get into Sugar Creek. And we're surrounded. Uh, in, and if you don't see the sign that says you're leaving Independence and moving into Kansas City, you know, you're not sure where you're at. You see, you miss a sign telling you, and you're not sure where city you're, you're going to wind up. And the laws in one may not be the laws in the other. And it's so easy. If you don't have your Lord's girt about with truth, if you're going to miss the signs. And just as it's hard for me or you to drive down 40 Highway and to tell for sure if I'm in Kansas City or Independence, it was really hard for people to leave Colossia and drive 11 miles south and know when they're in the Laodicea. That's the problem in the church today. Churches miss the road signs. They still think they're in Colossia when they're in Laodicea. And that is one of the most prominent examples of anywhere in the Bible. There's two books in your Bible that will define those for you. The book of Acts will define for you the road signs you need to look for, and the book of Revelation will be your actual road map of how you're going to get where you want to get. And without the book, without the Word of God, without the perception, without the light that guides you through those things, so many of God's people today think they're one place when actually they've transferred into Laodicea. And it's a very short trip, and it's a very trip that there's no banners or lights that tell you you're now entered in. It's so subtle you just go from one to the other and that's where churches have done today. And this is the world. Is in the mess that it's in today? I make no apologies for it. The world and it's a, this country is in the mess that it's in today. This world is in the mess that it's in today because churches uh, are in the mess that they're in today. There's no salt and there's no light. Matthew chapter 5. The salt, the preservative, that would have preserved this country if pastors would have stood in the pulpit and preached it. But they didn't. They went the easy route. They went the big church route. They went the money route. They went everything they did except standing in the pulpit and giving their people the absolute truth of the Word of God to keep their lives and their families together. 
And that's what preserves a nation, a family, you as an individual. The salt of the Word of God. But the salt today has lost its savor. And when the salt went, the light went. You know, I'd forgotten this week that this was the anniversary of the 1955 Le Mans race in France that was an absolute, probably the worst auto crash race wreck in the history of auto racing. 65 years ago, I think Thursday was the anniversary of it. And it popped up and I kind of watched it and I had, I'd known about it. I'd used it many times and, and thought about it, but I'd forgotten all about it. And there it was. This is the, this is the 65 years ago, 1955. And this accident, it's such a picture of a disaster that America is in today, and really the whole world. And it was, it was unbelievable. And I, when I saw it early on in my life and, and saw it years ago, it just struck me. This is Christianity today. There's a movie you all ought to watch, and you don't have to watch the whole thing, but it's so true. It's called The Big Red One. How many has ever seen the movie The Big Red One? It's a movie about the 1st Infantry Division, and uh, how they got the title of the Big Red One. And there's, there's one part of that that I just, I'll I, I just, if it's coming on, I'll just tape it and watch that one part and erase it because it's so true of what, these guys in this squad are sneaking in to try to blow up this self-propelled gun and they, they, they go into this insane asylum that the Germans are occupying. And they're sneaking around in there and the Germans are eating and all these Socially retarded kids uh, and adults are in there, and it, you, you can imagine they're all—I mean, they're, they're really socially retarded. I mean, it's a crazy loony bin, and they're all nuts, and they're, they're in there, and the Germans are eating them, and, and the Germans are eating on one side, and the crazy people are eating on the other side, and uh, so the Americans are going to wipe them out. So what happens was they bust in, they start shooting the Germans, and the people over here, and the Germans start shooting back, but the people are caught in a crossfire over here, you know, and they're eating things. And so they knock down enough Germans, and this crazy guy, he picks up a Schmeiser 9mm machine gun, and everybody's firing all around him, and he starts shooting his own people. <laughs> and he shows the, the crazy people falling on the floor, and he's blowing up people, and he says, I'm sane! I'm sane! He thought being sane was killing everybody with a machine gun. That's what the world is today. They're running around killing everybody, doing the stupidest things in the world, and they're saying, I'm sane! I'm sane! And the world is insane. America is an insane asylum run by the inmates, if you haven't figured it out yet. And it's our fault. Anyway, in this Le Mans race, these cars were going 160 miles an hour. And you know Le Mans, France, is where they weave through the thing now, and it was like 20,000 people. 20,000 people in the grandstands. And they're coming down the straightaway, and this one car banged into the car in front of him, and it sent him airborne into the air. And he goes over the stand where all the people are sitting, and it explodes in flames. It spread the gasoline and fire and pieces of the car like shrapnel through the whole crowd. It killed over 80-some people. 
and people are screaming, they're running, and they're on fire, and they're running out the tracks, and the, you got to see it, it's, it's on YouTube, it just explodes everywhere, and all the fire just comes down and descends on all the spectators, and people are screaming and smoking, you see people running on fire, and everything is, and it's the most chaotic disaster that you ever saw, and while all that is going on, Somebody didn't shut the music off through the sound system. Now, while people are dying, screaming, burning to death, being ripped to shreds by hot metal through the sound system, they're playing circus music. And I'm thinking to myself, it as isn't, if that isn't a picture of the world. People are dying, they're screaming, they're being burned alive, and they're dying and going to hell. And they're without hope. They're losing their families, they're losing their marriages, they're losing their lives, they're losing everything. And the world is playing circus music through the PA system. And I'm telling you, it simply comes down to you and me being that light. This church will only be as strong as its weakest link. It takes you and me letting our light shine. And then as a church, the light shining on a hill that all the world sees and knows that there's light here. You can have the greatest King James Bible on the planet. You can have the greatest you know, uh, uh, classes that you could ever want. If you and I don't understand and get the perception that the merchandise you have is good, and determined not to let your candle go out by night. Only time it did was back in the Old Testament where it's a perfect picture of where we're at today. And Samuel got called into the ministry. I've taught it to you many times, just like God will call every one of you into the ministry if that's what he wants you to do. And it all starts with keeping the candle on, letting the world see the light that's in you, that God lit the day you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior and let the world, as he says, see God's light through your good works because he's begun a good work in you and perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we thank you today for the Lord Jesus. We thank you today for the truth of your word. We thank you.